All right, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me again to Hebrews chapter number 13. Hebrews chapter 13. The King of Love, My Shepherd Is, a beautiful old hymn. I hope you focused in on the beautiful text and words of that song. Thankful for Andy's intentionality and always being spirit-led with songs and attempting to look for themes and and focus points within our, our, our text that we're looking at week in and week out. Uh, we see the, the Good Shepherd in our passage here in Hebrews 13, and so I hope that imagery of that song will help us wrap our hearts and minds around uh, Hebrews 13 as we close out uh, this text. Here we are at the, the end of Hebrews, and what a journey it's been. I hope Again, that your hearts and your minds have been challenged. I hope you've been encouraged. Um, I hope your understanding of the gospel, I hope your understanding of Jesus Christ and his role as our great high priest um, has changed you. And um, as we close out a series, it's always hard to to move on from something that you've poured yourself into. And as elders, this has been... Uh, such a challenging but yet rewarding uh, book to, to work through. And so we're here. The title of this morning's message is simply a final word. A final word. We're going to see this morning the heart of the author in a very personal and relational sense. Throughout this book, we haven't necessarily seen um, a personal touch to this book. There's been certainly warnings, exhortations. There's been uh, theology and, and doctrine, hard concepts that uh, this author has, has worked through uh, throughout these 13 chapters. And, and here as this author finishes out this letter, uh, we, we see this surprising and helpful personal and relational tone that shifts here at the end as he draws this this teaching to a close. We see some first-person pronouns introduced in this section, and we see this desire to not just teach and exhort and equip, but now he equally desires for them to know his heart. He clearly loves his readers, and as he knows this letter must come to an end. We can see him wrestling with, with kind of how, how to say goodbye in this letter. And these are his, his final words. I can remember growing up when we would go visit my, my grandparents. Uh, I, I never had the, the pleasure of having grandparents in uh, our state, we, we always were traveling out through summers and vacations to go visit grandparents or other relatives. We didn't have many uh, family members close by. And uh, I can remember specifically one thing about my sister is that she was never good at goodbyes uh, as a child. For some reason, uh, her heart was, was really just 
tugged with the reality of this separation. And, uh, you know, I don't know if it was just me being a guy or her being a girl or probably a little of both, but I'm, I always kind of remember as a younger brother looking at her like, you know, I, I, I don't know what's so sad about this situation. You know, there was, there was often tears and the struggle of saying goodbye to grandma and grandpa and saying goodbye to aunts and uncles and cousins. And here I'm just saying, hey, goodbye, we'll see you later. And, and, and my sister is, is having a hard time with, with saying goodbye. Maybe you can relate to, to one personality type over the other, but goodbyes are hard. And the older that I get, um, the sobering reality is that uh, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. And anytime I do have the opportunity to engage and interact with, with family or friends, uh, I find that goodbyes are a bit harder now than they were when I was just an absent-minded young person, not really understanding what was going on. But goodbyes can be hard. There's always that moment when you say goodbye. I don't know if you've been here before. You, you say goodbye, but then you linger. Maybe it's at a life group. Uh, maybe you have, you're hosting family members and and, and the time has come to an end where they've got to hit the road, they've, they've got to leave, and everybody kind of goes to the door, and you give hugs, and you say goodbye, and you're just, you're just kind of hanging out there. Have you ever been there before? It's like nobody really wants to leave, and maybe you get into a side conversation, and, and you lingle, linger a, a bit longer, and you're kind of just waiting, who's going to... Who's going to say, well, you know, that's the Midwestern thing to do. Well, you know, it's, you know, God bless you as as you go on your way or whatever it might be. But you linger. Why? Because goodbyes are hard. You don't want to say goodbye. And and I kind of get this sense of of that right here at Hebrews 13, at this this last paragraph, this last section, the author is is lingering (laughs) at, at at the door there and is not wanting to actually say goodbye in this letter. And so uh, with that in mind, we, we see this relational tone of this section. And as we work through it, there's not much here that we're going to be confronted with that me needs a lot of deep explanation. We're not going to really dive into anything, deep doctrinal truths that we haven't already unpacked. This is just going to be a, a relational touch point to show the heart and love and concern of this author towards his readers. We're simply going to work our way verse by verse through verses 17 through 25. We're going to make some observations, and then by God's grace, our goal is this. We're going to seek to bridge those observations over to our context right here at Liberty Hills Bible Church. And I believe that God will be glorified in this feeble attempt to honor and obey his word this morning. So let's go ahead and read our text one more time. Can we do that? We don't often do that when we, we jump into the preaching time, but let's go ahead and stand if you would. Let's go ahead and stand and read this, this text together, and I, I pray that you'll, you'll focus in on these words, this inspired word of God as we, we read these verses one more time. Hebrews chapter number 13, verses 17 through 25. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. 
I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse number 22, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray once again as we just ask God to bless our time together. God, we come to you right now. We just pray that your Holy Spirit would stir our hearts. I pray that you would not only be with the preaching of the word, but God, I pray that you would be with the receiving of the word of God. I pray that you would open our ears, open our hearts that we would gladly receive your word. And God, I pray that we would walk in obedience to it. God, I pray that you would do a work in our heart that I cannot do. We need to hear from your word and we need your Holy Spirit to awaken us from the slumber. God, I pray that you would cause there to be an awareness about us this morning with the soberness of this text. I pray that we would leave this place as we have gathered in obedience to your word. I pray that we would leave this place in unity, believing and trusting in the inspired word of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. A final word. This brings us to the big idea of our text this morning, which is this. Allow the gospel to influence your relationship with church leadership and joyfully live every moment of your life by God's grace and for his glory. Read that one more time. So we allow others to take notes here. The big idea of our text here is this. Allow the gospel to influence your relationship with church leadership and joyfully live every moment of your life by God's grace and for his glory. Again, this morning we're just going to look at three simple observations from this final paragraph in Hebrews chapter number 13. We're, our, our goal will be to unpack this text and, and we'll, we'll seek to have an understanding of, God, of what God would have for us as we close out this series. Point number one this morning is this. We're going to look at a challenge to be in relationship with your leaders. There's a challenge that the author of Hebrews has for us to truly be in relationship with your leaders. Whether we as pastors like it or not, there is somewhat of a cultural stigma that comes with being a pastor. I maybe feel this a, a bit more than I have in the past as I, I, I don't necessarily have... Uh, uh, another uh, tag on as far as vocational description, right? When you meet somebody in the community, I'm now saying, 
I'm Eric Stanley, and I'm, I'm a pastor. <laughs> and, and sometimes when you run into some people, they have baggage or they have some past experience. When, when that word pastor comes out of your mouth, there's this, they just take a little step back, you know. And you're like, I, I don't bite, right? I'm, I'm just, I put my, my pants on just like everybody else. I'm a real human being, right? There's, there's nothing special or anything to be scared of. You don't have to walk on eggshells around me. I'm a real human being. But there is this, this stigma about being a pastor. The sad truth of the matter is, is that there has been a mountain of pastoral failure to justify this present stigma. I'm confident that if we were to take the time, we could literally go person by person, family by family, and, and we could share some kind of negative, hurtful, even traumatic interaction with some church leader of the past. This isn't unique to our day. These original readers were already struggling with negative influences, false gospels, leaders imposing Judaistic demands on top of the gospel. Do you remember the warning and admonition of verse number nine? Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. So there are likely many of these original readers that had already established some type of baggage concerning their relationship with leadership in the context of the local church. They were skeptical of this next generation of leaders, and so our author sees this as a great opportunity to speak into this tension and cultural stigma that is even present in our day. And sad to say, many denominations and church structures have this separation of clergy and laity. And there's this inappropriate and unhelpful and quite frankly ungodly view of leadership in the local church. And so our author here is seeking to inform their understanding of how they should think about leaders, and not only how they should think about their leaders, but how they should relate to these leaders. Verse number seven, we were encouraged to do what? Do you remember it? Remember our leaders. We were called and encouraged to remember our leaders, and now he circles back to this topic of being in relationship with church leaders, and it's here that he builds this new challenge now in verse number 17, and, and he goes on to say to obey and submit, and then in verse 17, to pray for your leaders. And with verse 7 included, the author challenges his readers to consider their relationship with church elders in terms of remembrance, obedience, submission, and prayer. So let's break this down as the author builds on his admonition to remember your leaders and specifically what they spoke to you concerning the word of God. And as you consider their way of life and imitate their faith, he now says to obey. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but when I even read that, there's stigma that comes with leadership specifically around this word, obey. Culturally, in, in our day, many pastors have grossly 
abused this text and leveraged it in a domineering fashion, an effort to over-spiritualize the role of the elder. And, and I, find it, I find it helpful in understanding what something means in a text. At least this is how my mind works. So if yours doesn't, I apologize, but uh, we're going to go through this exercise because I'm preaching this morning. So uh, in order to help myself understand it, oftentimes I'll look at the text and say, what does it not mean? Right? What, is this, what does this not mean? And then we can narrow our focus down on what it does mean. Maybe you've heard this infamous quotation from the pulpit of this Old Testament quotation of do not touch the Lord's anointed. Have you ever heard that preached or, or shared or communicated in some type of, of church setting? This phrase is yanked out of context from 1 Chronicles 16 and Psalm 105. And oftentimes a gross amount of eisegesis, meaning man's opinion and interpretation, is inserted where God ha had not intended it to be. This out-of-context application is deployed in pride and arrogance and oftentimes to establish and maintain an unbiblical model of authoritarian leadership within churches. Do not touch the Lord's anointed. And it's applied to whom? Elders and pastors, of which those verses were never intended to be applied towards. Speaking to prophets in the Old Testament, not an elder within a New Testament biblical church. And so oftentimes when we see this passage in Hebrews 13 and there's this obey and submit type of understanding, it's viewed through the lens of that. Some CEO singular model of authoritarian leadership. And what that man says is, thus says the Lord. Do not touch the Lord's anointed. I say all of that to first acknowledge that they, there may be some type of baggage that you've experienced in that type of church culture. I pray that that would never be the case here at Liberty Hills Bible Church. So that said, with that context in mind, when we read these words here in verse 17, obey and submit to your leaders, some of you might start to get a little uncomfortable, and some of you might get a little twitch in, in your eye, and, and you might start getting a little PTSD from some other church experience where you had an authoritative leader, and this is not what we have in mind here. This is not what it means to obey and submit. It does not look like that. So what does it mean then to obey your leaders? If you're like me, at the time that I hear the word obey, my mind immediately pictures that parent-child relationship, right? When you, when you hear the word obey, what, what, what do you think of? You think of children obeying parents, and, and kids, help me out here. What's kind of the famous verse or a verse that you're very, very familiar with that talks about children obeying parents? Kids, help me out. What's that, what's that reference? Remember that from Ephesians? Don't be shy. Ephesians chapter what? Six, verse one, right? What does this verse say? Children, obey your parents. How? In the Lord, for this is right. 
Ephesians 6.1, the word for obey is the Greek word hupakuo, which has the idea of being, uh, being called to follow instructions or to strictly obey, to follow or to be subject to. That's a word there in Ephesians 6. This is what it looks like to be in that parent-child type of relationship and understanding obedience within that context. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse number 17, the word for obey here is the Greek word patho. It has the idea of causing one to come to a particular point of view or a course of action. It has the idea of being convinced or influenced by has the idea of allowing oneself to be persuaded by another. So in this simple word study, we certainly see and feel a very different demeanor or tone in this concept of obedience. It's not this domineering or authoritarian father who demands obedience from his children. And if you dare deviate or challenge the word of this father, his inclination is to appeal to some unbiblical and quite frankly ungodly misapplication of this idea of do not touch the Lord's anointed. Rather, in the context of verse number seven, these faithful elders have done what? As you remember these elders, what are you remembering? That they have spoken faithfully and rightly the word of God. Their way of life and testimony establishes that they are truly in the faith and walking with the Lord. And in the context of remembering these leaders that had spoken, not their words or their opinions, but rather they have spoken the inspired word of God. It is these faithful men that we should obey in the sense of allowing ourselves to be influenced, not by these men, but by the word of God that they speak. Friends, I'm lingering maybe a bit longer at this point. Why? Because I believe this is a concept that is misunderstood and misapplied in in many ways. And at the end of the day, the Lord desires for his church to have relationships, not just with other members of the body, but he desires for the body to be in right relationship with their leaders. Why? Why is that a concern? of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God because we as leaders and elders and pastors, we are also a part of the same body. We are a part of the same body, and guess who is the head? Not the elders. Jesus Christ is the head of this body. So then the admonition comes, remember them. Obey them, submit to them, allow yourself to be influenced by the word of God that they faithfully point you to. And it's here that the author gives three reasons why they should do this. Subpoint number one remember, obey, and submit to your leaders. Why? Because they are keeping watch over your soul. Keeping watch refers to the wakeful vigilance at night when enemies might attack under the cover of darkness. It was the duty of the watchmen on city walls and shepherds 
tending flocks in open country. This is the role of elders and pastors to shepherd the flock of God among us. We see this in 1 Peter chapter number 5, verses 1 through 4. So I exhort, exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Remember, obey, and submit because they're keeping watch over your soul. A second reason, second sub-point. Remember, obey, and submit to your leaders. Why? Because they will give an account James 3.1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Watchmen who fail to sound the alarm when enemies approach and shepherds who do not protect the flock from predators will answer to God for their negligence. Then sub-point number three. Remember, obey, and submit. Why? Because not doing so would be of no advantage to you. He appeals to just the raw advantage. Resisting the clear teaching of God's word and being unwilling to receive the truth of the gospel for your life, it is proclaimed among you will only bring groaning in the life of the elder and discomfort and frustration in your life individually. There's no advantage. On the contrary, there is a joyful life promise for both the elder and the body of Christ when we gladly and joyfully receive the word of God. There is no advantage to disobedience and rebellion to God's word. That road is hard, it's difficult, it's paved with groaning and anguish, and its end is ultimately destruction. James chapter number 1, verse number 12, and following... Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, for God himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is coming from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first 
fruits of his creatures. Remember, obey, submit, and now the author goes on to say pray. Being in true relationship with your leaders should culminate in a desire to pray for them. There are burdens, pressures, sorrows, struggles that aren't always public to the entire church. Pray for us that we would remain faithful to the word of God. Pray for us as we, along with you, desire to, to confront the prevailing winds of society and culture with the truth of God's word. Pray for us as we, we pray for you. We are one of the same body. We are to be fitly joined together right along with each and every one of you. We, we too, although called and affirmed as elders, are still but sheep among sheep under the headship of Christ. First Timothy 4 reminds us of these realities. Verse number 11 and following, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe, command, and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Pray, church, that there would be no reproach on the gospel due to a failure of your elders. Pray that our conscience would remain clear and that we would act honorably in all things. Verse 19, our author believed in the power of prayer. He desired to be reunited with them. And his reflex in the midst of this desire was simply to pray that their fellowship would be restored as soon as possible. So our first observation was a challenge to be in relationship with your leaders. Our second observation is a prayer to walk in the gospel with one another. It's a prayer to walk in the gospel with one another. So as the author re requested prayer for himself and the other elders among them, he also in turn offers a meaningful prayer right here in this closing section. And this is actually the first of two benedictions with the final and much shorter one being found in our last verse of verse number 25. These words recorded for us in verses 20, 20, 21, and then 25 are more than just a prayer. They are a true benediction. One commentator in describing the role of a benediction in a letter states that they carry a bit more weight than simply a petitioner's supplication. It goes on to state that they confer benefit through a minister authorized to speak from and for God. 
Benedictions, as we see them in the New Testament letters, extend the Old Testament tradition of priestly blessing on Israel with the threefold pronouncement of the Lord's name to convey what? Blessing, protection, favor, grace, and peace. And that's certainly what we see right here from this author. Verses 21 and verse 20 and 25. How does the author do that? The author does that in appealing to the personal work of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Our author leverages this benediction as an opportunity to establish once again the superiority, the preeminence of Jesus Christ one last time. This is our author lingering at the door. It is only Jesus who has defeated death and rising up from the grave. It is only Jesus, this great shepherd of the sheep. It is only Jesus that came and took on flesh and as the perfect lamb of God went to the cross, shed his blood for the flock of God. And it was only Jesus who is better and it is only Jesus that offered a better sacrifice and as such established a better and a new covenant. And this covenant is eternal. It has no end. It is this Jesus, the word of God, the logos, that will equip you with everything good so that you will do his will. And it is this Jesus through the Holy Spirit of God that is working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. This is the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I couldn't help but think and remember and recall Ephesians chapter number two. I'm going to read just a few verses here. I pray that you would just glory in the beauty and the truth of this text as we see Christ high and lifted up. Hear the word of the Lord, verse number one of Ephesians chapter number two. Brothers and sisters, hear and receive this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace... You have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As we walk in these good works that he has prepared beforehand, you know what happens? God is glorified. God is glorified. He receives the glory forever and ever. Amen. Many catechisms will include this question. What is the chief end of man? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Forever. 
This is the chief end of man, to glorify God. How do we glorify God? We walk in the truth of the gospel daily together in fellowship and unity within the context of the local church. So first, a challenge to be in relationship with your leaders. The second observation was a prayer to walk in the gospel with one another. And our third and final observation this morning is an exhortation and encouragement to continue in grace. An exhortation and encouragement to continue in grace. So it's here that the author now addresses his readers' interpersonal relationships. He appeals or exhorts. This word is parakaleo. He is appealing to them, exhorting them, encouraging them, admonishing them to bear with his word of exhortation. That is the entire letter that comes before. To bear with this word of exhortation. To gladly receive the truth of the word of God. To remember who Jesus is, what he did for us in the gospel. That he is our great high priest. He has made a way. Bear with the author in this word of exhortation. This is a call to receive this letter, to wrestle through these teachings. It's an exhortation for them to know the gospel, to know Jesus, to understand who he is as the great high priest. This is an appeal to run the race with endurance. This is a call to persevere in the faith despite hardships and and despite persecution. This is a call to remember, to remember who Jesus is. And as we remember Hebrews, what have we learned that Jesus is? He is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Levitical priestly system. He's better than anything else you can put into that equation. Jesus is better. As a reminder of this reality, he points their attention to this example of Timothy, whom the author states was imprisoned but is now released. What's interesting, the rest of the New Testament is actually silent on any imprisonment of Timothy, but it certainly is likely that he would be imprisoned just as Paul and others had been for doing what? Preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as such, we see the author once again reveal his genuine love for this church as he desires to do what? To see them. And to see them when? Soon. He's hoping that he and Timothy can can be together in fellowship with this local church. In addition, he calls out a greeting to the leaders once again, and he also makes a note concerning those that come from Italy. What's going on there? Well, this indicates that the gospel had spread throughout Italy beyond that of the reach of just Rome. The the gospel was spreading. The church was growing. The Great Commission was being lived out. There were disciples that were going and making more disciples, planting and watering, and God was giving increase. And so these final comments should not be looked past. 
If viewed through the lens of his original readers, we can see how these words would be dripping with encouragement and love for these people. Maybe they were facing imprisonment as well. And so his call to not forget that what? Timothy is released. This too, potentially, by God's grace and for his glory, would come to pass. Maybe they were considering throwing in the towel because of of the hardships and persecution. Well, the author would have them look at how the gospel was on the move in, in Italy and the church was expanding and growing despite these temporary setbacks of hardships and persecution that had been called out previously in this letter. And most importantly, he finishes with these six words of benediction. Once again, grace be with all of you. Grace be with all of you. There's no more fitting way to close this letter than for the author, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to convey this blessing of God's grace over his readers. This entire letter has been built on the foundation of God's grace. This entire book has been about the grace of God that has been showed towards us in the gospel through the personal work of Jesus Christ. This new and better covenant, this better sacrifice once for all, Jesus establishing a new way for his people to be in fellowship with his Holy Father. We've been saved by grace and we will persevere and endure to the end by God's grace. Beginning to end, it is all about God's grace. God's grace that was shown towards us through Jesus Christ. The true and better Jesus Christ. Big idea of this final word from our author of Hebrews to allow the gospel to influence your relationship with church leadership. Joyfully live every moment of your life by God's grace. There was a challenge to be in real intentional relationship with your leaders in verses 17 through 19. There was a prayer to walk in the gospel with one another in verses 20 and 21. And then there was finally an exhortation and encouragement. Continue on in the grace of God for the glory of God. I wonder this morning as you consider this final paragraph, this final word, as we bring this letter to a close, I wonder what does your relationship look like look like with the leadership here at Liberty Hills Bible Church? I wonder this morning, are you walking in the truth of the gospel day in and day out? Is the gospel that saved you the gospel that is sanctifying you day by day, moment by moment? You walking in the spirit. I wonder this morning as you look at this exhortation, encouragement to remember God's grace is ever present in your darkest moments of failure and loss and sorrow and difficulty through persecution and hardship and uncertainty. God's grace is there and he's doing something. He's making you more like his son, Jesus Christ. 
as our minds are renewed and transformed by the word of God, as we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, as we're not conformed to this world, the Holy Spirit of God is making us day by day, moment by moment, more like his son, Jesus Christ. This, friends, is what it looks like to walk in the gospel and to live in the power of God's grace. Would you bow your head, close your eyes with me this morning. God, we just come to you right now. I pray that as we reflect on all that you have done, all that we have learned and been taught in the book of Hebrews, God, I pray for one thing, the prayer that this author prayed in the benediction of verse 21. God, I pray that you alone would get the glory. I pray that you would use your word to break up a hard heart. I pray that you would use your word to soften our heart and our mind towards the truth of God's word. God, I pray that you would use your word to strengthen and to bolster our faith. For the one that is here this morning that is struggling, hurting, the one that their faith is waning, I pray that they would remember that just as Luke 22, Satan has demanded to have us, that he would sift us like we, but I, meaning Jesus Christ, has prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Thank you for these true and powerful words from Christ that when you return, strengthen your brothers. God, I pray that you would use our moment of struggle and difficulty to strengthen our faith and that your grace would be ever present and that we would glory in our weaknesses because in our weaknesses you alone are strong. We thank you for what you're going to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.